Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds. Welcome to Cardio Nerds episode 154. But before we get to that, I'd like to bring back and reintroduce a very special Cardio Nerd, Dr. Gurleen Kaur. Gurleen, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here, Ahmed. Thank you. So for everyone, Gurleen is now an intern at Brigham and Women's Hospital with the goal of eventually becoming a cardiologist. She joined the Cardio Nerds Academy as a medical student at Albany Medical College you know, we built the Cardiners Academy to push the envelope in digital education and leveraging social media. We actually took a lot of cues from the Nephrology Social Media Collective, and we'll get to hear from one of its co-founders, Dr. Matt Sparks, later in this episode. But Gurleen, I'd love to hear what being a part of the Cardiners Academy has been from your perspective as an academy intern. Yeah, I think I've gotten a lot out of the academy, but if I had to kind of distill it down, I think it would come down to the ability to connect with so many different and really amazing educators from all across the country. It's great how the academy has really spanned different levels of training and different interests within cardiology. So it's been great to work with people who are so passionate about cardiovascular education. And I think it's, it's kind of been very contagious, that energy and passion and the ability to like work with these really brilliant, kind and humble people, whether it be on like tutorials or infographics or the journal club has really allowed me to grow over the past year. And I think it's not just limited to like cardiology and cardiovascular knowledge and information, but just how to kind of conceptualize these concepts through digital media and disseminate them and truly democratize cardiovascular education. The other aspect I think of the academy that's been really special is how it's so flexible in terms of coursing your own path. And just you, Dan, and Karan, and everyone else in the academy, how you really fostered everyone's interest and really invested your energy and time into helping us grow throughout the academy, whether it be your interest or just in terms of leadership and professional development. You know, Gurleen, I couldn't agree with you more. And of course, I've learned a lot of cardiology from everyone in the academy. But I think the, the really special aspect of it is the community and the network and the energy that everyone brings. And speaking of which, I think I speak for everyone in the Academy in that uh, how special it's been to work with you, Gurleen. You've really you've elevated the Academy. You've elevated the content with your energy, your passion for education, and your innovative ideas. It is with so much pride that we've invited you to become the director for the new Cardi Nerds internship as you grow the Academy to include medical students. So what is your vision as a director of the Cardi Nerds internship? Yeah, I think my vision for the internship is to give, as you're saying, the medical students really the opportunity to immerse themselves into the amazing community that the academy is. And I think one of the most important aspects of the academy has been the ability to kind of provide mentorship from within the academy, but also from outside in terms of the different levels of training that people have in the academy, as well as other people that you've connected us with, whether it be ambassadors or other aspects of cardiners. So I think giving medical students the ability to learn more about the field and really develop their own unique path and explore their interests is what I'm looking forward to. And I think the best part about CardiNerds is really the core mission of democratizing education. And the interns represent that because even at the level of medical students, they'll be able to serve as educators for others, no matter the level of training. And I'm really excited to work with them to foster their individual growth, not just in digital media and podcasts and editing, but also in terms of professional development and bring them into this community of cardiology. You know, the um, incoming Cardiners interns are so lucky to have you as a leader, and we're all just so excited to see what you're going to turn their experience into and how you're going to grow the internship. So now let's talk about this episode. We've been looking forward to this for such a long time. This is a follow-up to the last episode, episode 153, where we discussed an incredible case of refractory diuresis from colleagues at Johns Hopkins University. In this episode, we get a no-holds-barred, all-out match between cardiology and nephrology for how to approach challenging diuresis. Representing cardiology, we'll have Dr. Michael Felker, and representing nephrology, we'll have Dr. Matt Sparks, both from Duke University. Gurleen, you've had the opportunity to listen to this discussion, edit the audio, and 
more than that, you've created a beautiful infographic that everyone can view in the episode description. What were your main takeaways from this discussion? Yeah, I think this episode is just really helpful, especially as an internal medicine intern, since we often manage patients with heart failure so often. I think one of my major takeaways is how complex this world of diuretics is. And sometimes it's not as simple as just diuretics. There's a lot of other nuances and a lot of other strategies that can be used when a patient has diuretic resistance, as well as how there's a lot of different evidence out there for different interventions, that there's still studies ongoing. So I really enjoyed hearing Dr. Falker and Dr. Sparks talk about all these complexities in the world of diuretics. And it also, I think when I was creating the infographic, it really helped me think about the pathophysiology of diuretic resistance and how often it really comes down to the level of the nephron in terms of understanding how some of these diuretic resistance mechanisms are working and how they can be addressed when you're thinking about the pathophysiology. You know, I'm not sure who ultimately won the match, cardiology or nephrology, but, you know, definitely the learner and definitely the patients come out as the true winners. Friends, just remember that Cardiodurance is an independent, fellow-founded platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Remember to claim free CME credit for this episode. And as always, any relevant speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. And now let's get on to the match between cardiology and nephrology. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. This episode was inspired by a clinical case that we just recorded with Dr. Nick Smith and Anjali Wagley, which was about a very complicated patient who was incredibly refractive to several diuretic strategies. In fact, in preparation for that episode, Nick and Anjali reviewed the terrific New England Journal of Medicine review on diuretics authored by Dr. Felker et al. After hearing that, we knew that we just had to reach out to Cardio Nerds Healy Honor Roll Ambassador from Duke and dear friend of ours, Dr. Kelly Arps, to make the connection with Dr. Felker. Kelly needs no introduction, as she was already featured on the CardioNerds platform. But for those of you who do not know, Kelly completed medical school at Emory University and residency at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. She's currently a clinical cardiology fellow at Duke University. Kelly is planning to pursue a career in cardiac electrophysiology. And in her free time, she enjoys running, playing golf, reading biographies, and cooking vegetarian cuisine. Kelly, welcome back. I am thrilled to be here. I'm in Dan. I've been learning from two of you since I was an intern. And today, we have two very special experts here representing cardiology and nephrology. Well, Kelly, I just have to say I'm so excited to have you back. But for our experts, let's begin with cardiology. In this quarter, weighing in at 25 postgraduate years, professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology at Duke University and head of cardiovascular research at the Duke Clinical Research Institute, Dr. Michael Felker. Dr. Felker obtained his medical degree from Duke University School of Medicine, completed internal medicine residency training at Johns Hopkins Osler Program, where he also served as the assistant chief of service. And finally, cardiology fellowship at Duke University, where he remained for an illustrious career, including having served as chief of the heart failure section and numerous other roles. He also authored, like Dan said, impactful NEJM and Jack reviews on diuresis, which are the basis for both the case that Dan talked about as well as the scripting for this episode. So Dr. Felker, so honored to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. And to provide that nephrologist perspective, in this corner, weighing in at 18 postgraduate years, program director for the Nephrology Fellowship Program and director of medical student research, Dr. Matthew Sparks. In addition to clinical research and educational roles locally at Duke University, Dr. Sparks is internationally recognized as a founding member of the Nephrology Social Media Collective, or NSMC, and the widely popular Nephrology Journal Club, hashtag NephJC, with the goals of leveraging social media to enhance free online medical education. In addition to the NephJC, they've created several impactful educational projects, including the AJKD Nephrology Block, Neph Madness, the Renal Fellow Network, and more. Dr. Sparks and his colleague, Dr. Joel Topps, mentorship has been invaluable for several of our own CardioNerds Academy projects. Dr. Sparks, so grateful for all of your support, and it is such a pleasure to finally have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks a lot, Amit. I'm really happy to be here and really happy for a battle with cardiology. It's what I've been waiting for. And also, I had to do a quick look to see if it really was 18 years postgraduate, and you're actually <laughs> right about that. I did my math right. <laughs> Actually, when you said weighing in at whatever, I was afraid that our actual weights would. would... <laughs> I, Dr. Belka, I had a ton of anxiety. Trust me. <laughs> well, let's get started, huh? Okay, round one. Let's consider a typical admission we see often. 
Our medical student in the medicine service is admitting her very first patient ever. This 63-year-old woman with morbid obesity, poorly controlled hypertension, insulin-dependent diabetes, sleep apnea, and HFPF. She's sent from her primary care office due to progressive dyspnea on exertion, orthopnea, PND, and lower extremity edema. Her JVP is unclear on exam, but she is 20 pounds above her dry weight. She has bilateral pitting, lower extremity edema, and pulmonary rolls. Creatinine is 1.4 from a baseline of 0.9. Her NT-proBNP is 2,500 from 300 in the past, and her x-ray shows pulmonary edema. Our student offers a terrific H&P, but isn't sure where to start with diuresis. Her home diuretic dose was furosemide, 40 milligrams daily. So Dr. Felker, what's your initial inpatient diuretic approach? So thanks, Kelly. This is certainly a very typical type of patient that we all see often on cardiology service. And I'll point out that a lot of these patients in the healthcare system are actually not on cardiology. They're taken care of by hospitalists and internal medicine and other physicians. So certainly this is the kind of thing we see often. The first question when I'm seeing a patient is, and we're thinking about this, is do they actually need more diuresis? Is that what's wrong with them? And certainly in this case, it seems pretty apparent. She's got uh, symptoms of congestion. She's got physical exam findings of congestion. She's got objective evidence of congestion with a pulmonary edema on her chest X-ray and an elevated NT pro BNP. So this one seems pretty straightforward, but often it's not straightforward. So I think it's clear that this patient is volume overloaded and congested and needs some diuresis. So important point that I'll probably make several times is that the response to diuretics in patients with heart failure or patients overall is so variable that really the initial dose selection and the initial strategy is empiric. But after that, it's really important that whatever subsequent dosing is, is really informed by the patient's response. So you can't just sort of say, this is the cookbook that I use, other than maybe just to get an idea of where to start. So think of your first question. This patient is already on diuretics at home. They take 40 milligrams of furosemide daily. And we were thinking about how sensitive people are to diuretics and how much they might need, how much they take as an outpatient is often a good place to start. Again, as I said, that initial dose is sort of an educated guess. So she's on furosemide. There's, as people know, I think a lot of other world loop diuretics out there, torsamide and bumetanide but furosemide is definitely the most common. As people are familiar or may not be familiar, you know, this is a question that comes up a lot. We actually did a randomized trial now a number of years ago called the DOSE trial, really trying to address a couple of questions, but including this one. In patients who are volume overload, get admitted to the hospital. What's the best initial dose of diuretics? And at the time, and still, I think there was a lot of concern that, and a lot of evidence from observational data that diuretics might be bad for you or that high-dose diuretics were bad for you. And there was a lot of people thinking we should minimize the dose of diuretics. So what we did in that trial, we randomized people to either, we called low dose, which was a one-to-one, a numeric equivalent of their oral dose. So in this case, it'd be 40 milligrams or high dose, which was two and a half times their oral equivalent. So it'd be 100 milligrams for this patient given IV. Um, in that trial, it was technically a neutral trial, but if you looked across the totality of the data, it was pretty clear there was a benefit in terms of decongestion in patients who got the higher doses of diuretics. I think what most people have taken from the dose trial is that more aggressive initial approaches to diuresis are useful. So I think a lot of people would choose two and a half fold or, or 100. One question I get probably every a month or so and I have ever since that paper came out is when we say two and a half times the diuretic dose do we mean two and a half times the numerical oral dose, or do we mean with some kind of pharmacodynamic conversion? So I'll just answer that. Um, again, here, we clearly didn't explain it well enough in the initial paper, but it's a numerical conversion, not a pharmacodynamic conversion. So if the patient's on 40, um, her, quote, high-dose arm would be two and a half fat or 100 milligrams of furosemide. One thing I'll point out, though, is this lady actually wouldn't have qualified for the dose trial. You had to be on at least 80 milligrams at home to get in to the trial because we wanted to identify patients who had some amount of diuretic resistance and not who were likely to be very responsive to initial doses of, of diuretics. Yeah. So first of all, Dr. Felfer, so much of our training comes from hearing it from your senior resident who heard it from their senior resident who heard it from their senior resident who, you know, who knows where they hear it. And now we know they heard it from you. So it's unbelievable to connect the dose trial to this conversation. It really, really elevates it. And so we really appreciate that perspective. So I guess let's swing over to the nephron to Dr. Sparks. What is your typical approach to initial inpatient diuretics? And how does this differ with the varying degrees of creatinine elevation? How do you factor that into your initial empiric dose? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And first, thanks for having me on again. I agree with everything that Dr. Felker said. I mean, that is a really important point that he made is that everyone's different and it's really important to have a starting point and then see how the patient responds and then sort of change it. And I think, you know, when I saw the Duke Heart Failure Service, I, I think I can't remember who it was. Someone had a chart that sort of like puts the patient like, are you doing better? the same or worse and have metrics around those like daily weights, uh, urine sodium measurement and and how the patient feels like all these parameters, physical exam. And so each day is sort of like, are things better? Are they worse? We need to escalate therapy. Are we on the right track? And so that's a really key point to make. So to your point about creatinine elevation, and we'll get to this later. And I think this is something that, you know, nephrologists are really thinking about this as well. And it's a concept that had various terms, but the one I like the best is called a permissive hypercreatinemia. And this is an important concept, and I, we'll talk about it in the, both the reviews that Mike has, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Jack Reviews, discusses this as well. And it's that, you know, actually the studies suggest that the patients that have these elevation creatinine do not have elevations in other biomarkers that we typically think of when we think of injury, like NGAL, Chem1. These are, are molecules that we can measure at, to say that injury has occurred. And even going beyond that, it's very interesting that you see patients actually do better that had elevations in creatinine or cystatin C plus these biomarkers and if they didn't. So that's one point I wanted to make about the elevated creatinine level. It is though, and I think this is a challenge because often patients that come in with CKD or chronic kidney disease are already on diuretics. And so that puts them already at a disadvantage because as we'll kind of delve into further is that the kidney can alter its compensatory mechanisms so that it's not poisoned by this dose of furosemide or brimetinide or torsemide because eventually the body recognizes that, hey, if we're going to live without this very important co-transporter NKCC2, we're going to have to kick on things in the distal nephron to basically have a steady state. And so that means patients that come in with CKD might need higher doses of furosemide and a lot of times just because they're on chronic therapy. I think in the end, you look at the scenario, you look at what's been happening to the patient, what dose of diuretic, and then you sort of go from there. The last thing I want to mention, though, about this, and I think this is really important, is we need to ensure that we have looked at other causes of swelling, of shortness of breath, all these symptoms that we're ascribing to heart failure. And so some of those things are making sure that their liver is okay, making sure that they don't have nephrotic syndrome. So I think a thorough examination to ensure that you're not missing something is also really important. Well, thanks, Dr. Sparks. I love what you said about permissive hypercreatinemia. I'm going to adopt that as part of my own vernacular. And point well taken, we won't ignore nephrosis or cirrhosis as alternative explanations for edema. Dr. Felker, you said earlier that our initial diuretic strategy or our diuretic dose is empiric. It's our best educated guess. We really have to follow that up and figure out where to go from there. So let's say for our patient, we do start with furosemide 100 milligrams intravenous dose. What's a good response? How do we know if we're hitting our mark? Yeah, so that's a great question. Maybe just to follow up on something Matt said that I think is really important and that that was worth hammering home. And that is, I think a clinical error I often see is the patient comes in and their creatinine is elevated over their baseline, like this patient. And so people think make the mistake of saying, well, I want to be very careful with diuretics because they've already got renal injury. When as we'll talk about Perhaps a lot of those are just from renal venous congestion and actually the creatinine will get better as you restore euvolemia. And so I think being afraid of the creatinine and maybe Matt might, you know, this might cause some heartburn for a nephrologist, but it sounds like he agrees. I think if the patient is volume overloaded and congested, you need to treat that and not be sort of scared away by an elevated creatinine. Again, within reason, you've got to sort of bring everything to the table and, and thinking about the patient. Totally agree. Treat the patient, not the number. Yes. I always tell people that I would much rather the patient feel good and have a creatinine of two than feel terrible and have a creatinine of one and a half. But to your question about what's a good response is really important because, of course, this is not something you just do one time. This is going to be an iterative thing. And actually, I think one of the challenges we see because it's kind of often built into the way we do clinical care in the hospital is we start some diuretic strategy, whatever it is, let's say it's 100 milligrams twice daily or whatever it turns out to be. And we could talk about whether it's better, how frequently you should give diuretics in the hospital, which is another topic. But um, And then we come back the next morning and see how things went. And then maybe we adjust the 
the diuretic dose on rounds based on the response. And then we come back the next day and see how things went. And really that's wasted time because you can tell within two to three hours tops after a dose of certainly of IV diuretics, whether the patient is going to have a good diuretic response. So I think a key thing is thinking about how to speed up the cadence of when you're looking to see if that diuretic response was adequate and then adjusting if it's not, as opposed to just waiting to the next day. So what does it mean to have an adequate response? And of course, there's tons of things we look at at the bedside. Is the patient feeling better? Are there exam signs of congestion improving, their drug venous distension, their peripheral edema, et cetera? We, of course, look at the tried and true things like their daily weights and their urine output and their ins and outs. And as we all know, we take care of patients in the hospital. Those things are fraught with variability and often are not even all moving in the same direction. So we you might see a patient who it looks like they're a leader negative, but their weight is actually up a little bit. And maybe there were some unmeasured occurrences or maybe not. So there's all of this variability in trying to figure out about the response. So I think if those are the things we use and you can sort of have arbitrary things in your head of what's a good response. After a dose of loop diuretic, I mean, certainly if you're sort of imagining we want this person to be like a leader negative a day or more, you know, if you don't have 150 milliliters of urine per hour after a couple of hours, that probably wasn't a sufficient dose. But I think in addition to all the traditional things we measure, I think there's a lot of interest in utilizing something that's more directly physiologically connected to what we're doing, which is for giving a drug to cause naturesis. And so actually measuring the sodium in the urine, you know, can be a very effective measure of whether achieving naturesis that you're interested in. Of course, you can do that with 24-hour urine collections, but that's very laborious and has a lot of the same issues with missing information. But really a spot urine sodium a couple hours after a dose of loop diuretic is actually pretty effective. And there's, I think, now going to be more and more data coming out about this kind of strategy approach about deciding, was that initial dose that I gave, was it sufficient? Do I need to give another dose? And if you do give another dose, do I need to give a higher dose? We often see that sort of S-shaped diuretic dose response curve. And so people say, well, I gave 100, now I'm going to give 120. But in reality, if you look at those graphs, that's a logarithmic relationship, which leads to this thing many people say, which is if you give a dose and it's not effective, don't give a little bit more. Usually the best thing is just, or what I typically do is just double the dose until you've actually achieved a diuresis. And then you can sort of control how much diuresis you get by deciding how frequently you're going to dose the patient, whether that's daily or BID or TID. And Dr. Kluckner, when you're measuring the urine sodium, what cutoff values are you looking for? Yeah, so Kelly, it's a great question. Obviously, if, if you have not very much sodium in the urine, that means the patient is pretty diuretic resistant. The numbers you often see are 50 or 70 micromoles per liter. If it's less than that, that's probably not a very good diuretic response. It really gets to this idea, which overlies a lot of what we talk about but we don't often use this term very much. And that's really what we're dealing with in a lot of these patients is diuretic resistance. So essentially all heart failure patients have some amount of diuretic resistance because if I gave a normal 20-year-old 20 milligrams of Lasix, I mean, they would have a profound diuresis. And if you give most heart failure patients 20 milligrams of Lasix, nothing happens. So I think we're really talking about with this urine sodium response is sort of how diuretic resistant is the patient and then how can we use that information to make the best decisions about dose. Well, that was great for round one. Both Dr. Sparks and Dr. Felker are still standing. If there was a knockout, then maybe perhaps it was our patient's dyspnea. You're terrible. <laughs> oh my God. Are, we, are we expected to comment on that or can we just let it slide? I think we hit a record for the, the most number of times a, a cardiologist has mentioned urine and measuring something in the urine. <laughs> I don't know whether I should be ashamed or proud, but definitely proud. <laughs> definitely proud. Let's move on to round two. Our medical student has excellent support from her senior resident. And together, they begin intravenous diuresis with intermittent furosemide dosing. In the first two days, the patient is net negative one liter every day. She's still clearly above her dry weight and continues to have significant edema and rels. However, her creatinine increases from 1.4 to 1.7. I know we said earlier that we shouldn't fear the hypercreatinemia, but this question comes up, how much of a creatinine increase should we tolerate? Dr. Sparks, in this context, does creatinine elevation have an impact on her long-term prognosis? And what would you do in this scenario? Would you push on with diuresis? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, this does occur often. And as Mike said earlier, we see this a lot. And oftentimes it happens not on cardiology service or nephrology consult, but the hospitalist or the internal medicine specialist is seeing this patient. 
if this patient is symptomatic, grossly overloaded, this degree of hypercreatinemia, that's why we call it hypercreatinemia, not EKI, is fine. And, you know, what was the limit? And I think in, at some point you have to say, if they're still volume overloaded, there's only one answer, and it's to try to get them to euvolemia. And so I'm really not sure what that cutoff would be. I think at some point you call nephrology and we look at the patient and say, we'll have two options here. Either we're going to do dialysis or we're going to continue with diuresis and we're going to talk about strategies to do that. But, you know, I think you say, all right, take a step, look at the patient. Are you missing anything? Are they obstructed? Is there any other reason for the creatine to be elevated? Do they have acute tubonecrosis from an antibiotic they had before they came to the hospital? Is it from NSAIDs that they were taking at home? And so dig the chart to make sure and talk to the patient to ensure you're not missing anything. And if it comes to the point where you're not, and it does appear they still have heart failure and they're still volume overloaded, uh, they need to continue with diuresis. Yeah, that was great, Dr. Sparks. And I appreciate you walking us through your logic to make sure that the elevation in creatinine is related to decongestion and not some other cause that may be actually decreasing our GFR. Dr. Felker, what's your approach to creatinine elevation during diuresis? And at what point do you reach to a right heart cath to guide fluid optimization? Yeah, so I thought Matt's comments were really true. And as he said, I mean, this scenario where you have, I would call this sort of a modest elevation in creatinine during diuresis is extraordinarily common. And if the patient is still congested, which in this case they are, they still have significant edema, they have rails, they're above their dry weight, then as as Matt said, you can't leave them that way, basically. They're not going to do well. So you do need to press on and continue decongestive therapy. And in terms of prognosis, I think these bumps in creatinine, we now, it's pretty clear. We used to get a lot more excited about them, I think, than we do in terms of worrying about them. I think it's pretty clear that in the long run, if they're accompanied by effective decongestion, they're actually, if anything, a favorable prognostic indicator in terms of your heart failure prognosis as opposed to an adverse indicator. To the question about when you should think about something like a right heart catheterization to sort of see where you are, you know, I think that's really when you're not sure where things are. So this particular patient, it's pretty clear they're volume overloaded. I don't think you need the right heart cath to tell you that. Many people, when they see the creatinine increase, worry about things like low output states, but actually your chronic output has to be pretty low to make a, a major impact on your creatinine. So at this point, I don't think that would be indicated. There are patients, especially patients with obesity or hard to examine or just hard to tell where sometimes this is happening and we can't really tell. Do we think they're sort of getting close to euvolemia and sort of have a lot of uncertainty at the bedside? And that's where I think a right heart cath can be very helpful. I can tell you my experience and it's biased because I take care of people with pretty bad heart failure. But nine times out of 10, if we do a right heart cath because we're not sure if the patient is still volume overloaded, they still are. I mean, most right heart caths we do, you know, the filling pressures are still high. But I think that's a scenario that's really helpful to, to sort of when you're uncertain based on what you're seeing at the bedside. Thank you, Dr. Felker, and definitely is spending a lot of time in the cath lab. Very similar experiences when doing right heart caths for puzzling situations, but where the team generally feels like the patient still has volume, they generally will end up having elevated billing pressures. Okay, so our senior resident also noticed that the patient's bicarb is rising. A VBG confirmed this as a contraction alkalosis rather than CO2 retention. Dr. Sparks, we run into this often. Should contraction alkalosis impact our diuretic strategy? And does this tell us anything about the intravascular volume? And finally, would you whip out something like acetazolamide to counteract this? Woo. Wow. Okay. Now we're getting to the fun part. Finally. So this is hard. This is tough. And the first answer to your question is, this is often termed contraction alkalosis, but in the setting of loop diuretics, that's usually not the case. The patients are usually volume overloaded. It does happen in the setting of diuretic resistance that you see those uh, couple where you have diuretic resistance, and then you also have this contraction alkalosis. I'll call it that, but it's really more than that. And it's basically a type of metabolic alkalosis that's generated from the diuretic that you use. And so how this happens is that you have increased delivery of sodium to the distal nephron, and that basically accelerates potassium and, and proton secretion. So you start to reclaim bicarb and you get this hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis. And then secondly, when you give diuretics, you increase the renin angiotensin system and particularly aldosterone, which increases apical VATPase activity in the intercalated cell. This leads to hydrogen ion secretion to the urine filtrate and then bicarb back into the interstitium through something called this chloride bicarbonate exchanger. Interestingly, this exchanger is called AE1. 
chloride bicarbonate exchanger 1 has been seen in patients with mutations to cause an autosomal dominant distal renal tubular acidosis. So it causes basically the opposite of what you see when it's turned off. So what do you do about this? So this can be very challenging. I think the first thing to do is don't freak out and give acetazolamide. Look at the labs and say, there's something very easy that you can do. And one, it's to replete their potassium stores. And so you can do that very easily by giving potassium chloride. And you don't want to get potassium citrate in this case, because that's going to give more alkali and worsen the alkalosis. And so oftentimes, just the repletion of potassium can be very beneficial in correcting this metabolic alkalosis. And so you can actually pull back in the literature from 1950s in, in dogs where they infuse potassium into dogs. And you can see a direct relationship between the serum potassium level and the ability of the kidney to excrete bicarbonate. Also, what it does is when you give a potassium chloride, potassium goes back into cells and then bicarb does as well. And so you have two ways in which this will diminish your metabolic alkalosis that you've generated. One through enhancing urine loss of bicarbonate and one is to bring it into cells. So that's the first thing I would do. The second thing that's possible, which I think there's some clinical trials that show this maybe didn't work as well as we wanted it, is these patients are on mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, which basically gets at the second cause of this contraction alkalosis, this increased aldosterone portion. So that can be uh, helpful in that scenario. And so then the last thing that you mentioned is the acetazolamide, which I think some people think about this first. And it's definitely something you can do if you're in a scenario where you're in a bind. I have not had to use this very often. If you do use this, you need to really watch the potassium because it can really lead to a lot of calurisis or potassium that's wasted into the urine. And so this is something that you have to watch for if you go get down to the road where all you have left to do is give acetazolamide. So that, that would be my strategy uh, for that scenario. There was actually a trial going on in Europe of acetazolamide as an adjunct to indiuretic resistance. I don't know its status. It might have been slowed because of COVID, like so many things. But there is some interest in this concept for diuretic resistant patients. But I, I agree with Matt. It's not something that we've had to do very often. But yeah, if you have a patient in this situation and they have hypokalemia, then you've got some work to do before you're to the point of using acetazolamide. But just the honest truth is, while it might be in the textbook a lot, you don't see this that often. These are really helpful tricks and tips that we're using it. And oftentimes we're replacing potassium anyways, and or we're using aldosterone antagonists. So very, very helpful. Okay, this has been a great discussion for round two. I'm not sure who is the winner from cards, the renal situation, but the patient is definitely coming out on top. So let's move on to the next round. Time for round three. While reviewing our students' admission orders, the resident reminds the team how important salt and fluid restrictions are as part of the usual heart failure order set. The student, having recently attended a lecture on evidence-based medicine, asked why we restrict salt and fluid. She appropriately quotes the 2013 ACC AHA heart failure guidelines, which read, Even the widely embraced dictum of sodium restriction in heart failure is not well supported by current evidence. Do we actually have sound data to support the gospel of salt and fluid restriction? I've actually seen some enthusiasm for salt loading to augment diuresis during acute heart failure exacerbations. Kelly, you raise such a fascinating point. You know, it seems to fly in the face of everything I learned in residency. But, you know, as we speak, my friend and brilliant co-fellow and actually now father of two, Robert Montgomery, designed and launched a RCT to randomize acutely decompensated heart failure patients in the hospital that are getting intravenous diuresis to salt tabs versus placebo. And he did it all as a general fellow. So I'm very excited to see what he'll find out. But to say the least, stay tuned. Wow, that's super fascinating and totally impressive that Rob is able to get this started as a fellow. Dr. Felker, we'd love to hear your perspective on salt, water, and heart failure. How do all these three things interact and mix? Well, the first thing I'll say is probably the student who quoted the guidelines to a resident on rounds might be a little bit of hot water. But I would say in terms of sodium and fluid restriction in patients with heart failure, and this is maybe a little bit against certainly conventional wisdom that we all learned, but there's almost nothing in cardiovascular medicine where so much effort has been spent on something with so little high quality data to back it up. And that really applies to limiting sodium and fluid in outpatients who have chronic heart failure and also in fluid and sodium restriction in the inpatient set. So I'm not saying that unlimited salt and fluid is fine in every patient. And there certainly are patients in the outpatient setting where diet 
does seem to be a, a trigger for decompensation. But it, in general, I think it sort of is not supported by the data. The more you look at the data, the more high quality the study design, so randomized versus non-randomized, the worse sodium and fluid restriction look. The one thing we are guaranteed to do, though, is create unhappy patients. So in general, I think, you know, sensible but very modest limitations on sodium and fluid are probably okay. But the draconian limitations I don't think are useful and may even be harmful in some studies. Now, patients with severe hyponatremia are a different issue because you're really treating a different thing. You know, sodium in general is one of those really complicated things as it relates to fluid balance. And I think, Dan, you did mention there's actually been uh, a group in Italy who's been very focused on the idea of actually giving sodium through hypertonic saline, usually to heart failure patients to try to augment diuresis. They've had some very positive data, although some of that data has been called into question. And a lot of those studies were not very rigorous in terms of their design. You know, there are some theoretical reasons you might think that would be helpful. I, I guess I would say the jury is is out on things like hypertonic saline, but certainly I think sort of rational sodium and fluid restrictions that are very strict will definitely make for happier patients and probably no worse outcomes. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Felker. And, you know, the case you referenced earlier from Nick and Anjali, they had such a difficult time with diuresis despite sequential nephron brocade using multiple agents. Uh, it was actually after they started hypertonic saline as a Hail Mary that uh, she began to respond. So it, it's an interesting concept. And I think uh, clearly we have more to learn about that. You know, if, if people are looking for some study question, I think it's clearly right for more study. It doesn't need a fancy proprietary drug from a pharmaceutical company to evaluate. So I think it would be a good target for people looking for a physiologic-based thing to explore more. I just want to point out in Neff Madness 2015, we had a matchup of hypertonic saline and acute heart failure versus sodium restriction in CHF. And we reviewed the literature at that point. And I have to admit, when I first read it, I was like, this has got to be like just off the wall crazy. But when you look at it and you think about like physiology and how it works is basically you acutely increase the intravascular osmolality and you sort of basically pull in salt and water from the interstitium in the intravascular space to the extravascular space so that then you could then deliver that to the kidney and, and produce a, a better diuresis. That's sort of the, the thought behind it. But I do also agree, most of the studies were done in single centers. There have been some, you know, questions about the rigor of the study design. And so I, I would like to see this replicated in a larger fashion. And the other thing is really important. This is really dangerous to do. And so you have to be really on the patient and know what you're doing. How much hypertonic saline are you giving them? And so I just want to like tell the listeners that if this is attempted, that needs to be done in a very controlled setting. Yeah. So don't try this at home, I guess. It's not part of our home care order set. <laughs> yeah. But the, the sodium restriction is fascinating. And, and I think that it's, especially in large epidemiologic studies, it's really hard to understand, you know, this J-shaped curve of there are patients that aren't eating at all, are going to have a high mortality and low sodium intake and yet the other extreme. And so we have the same problem in nephrology of trying to understand what you do about this and, and your management of patients in a chronic setting. So Dr. Sparks, does fluid restriction achieve anything beyond decreasing our patients' inpatient quality of life? Yeah, that, it's fluid restriction is really hard to do. And the good thing about hyponatremia management now is we have a lot of new drugs that are on the market that are, are helping us manage hyponatremia without having to go to really extreme fluid restriction. And so you see hyponatremia often in heart failure. And so in scenarios where tovaptan to block ADH is useful, you can also use urea. It comes in two different types, urea and urinade, which is actually a medical food. So it doesn't have to go through the FDA sort of restrictions for that. So I think it is hard hard to really restrict someone in what we've always said in nephrology is you basically tell the thirst goes away, you know, and if you push someone beyond that, it can be really challenging for the patient to comply and it's really painful. Well, that was a great discussion. I think our miserable fluid restricted patients took the wind in that one. So let's move on to the next rounds. Round four. Or our patient becomes progressively refractory to diuresis with intravenous furosemide. By the fourth day, she's getting 160 milligrams IV furosemide three times a day, but she's hardly negative 500 milliliters a day. But she's still clearly fluid overloaded. Dr. Sparks, what are the mechanisms of diuretic resistance and what's your approach to management in these scenarios? 
That's a good question. And we talked about it earlier, just a touch. And first, diuretic resistance is a subjective definition. It's really hard to define. And if you look in the literature and you find a few different ways that it can be described, but it's basically an inadequate rate or quantity of naturesis despite an adequate diuretic regimen. And so you can see a lot of subjectivity to that. And I think it's important to recognize that at some point you basically say we're not able to achieve diuresis with the largest dose of just a loop diuretic alone, and we need to think about something more. So why does that occur? That occurs for several reasons. And so it's split up into two main buckets. And the first one is the pre-renal mechanisms. And, and these are things that are before any filtrates made in the urine and or even beyond the loop where the loop diuretic works. And so venous congestion, we've mentioned that. I think we ascribe this as a common mechanism, but I think it's actually probably not the most common mechanism. The most common mechanism are actually things that are happening in the nephron. Other things are increased intra-abdominal pressure, reduced ejection fraction, hypolobulinemia, and sodium intake. So what about the intrarenal causes? And so there's two ways in which the kidney basically can respond to this poison NKCC2 co-transporter or sodium potassium chloride, which is what you're blocking with loop diuretic in the loop of Henle. And the first thing is to increase the proximal tubule sodium intake. So the body is like saying, hey, why are we losing all this sodium? We want to retain it. And we're going to do that any way we can. And, and one way is to upregulate the proximal tubule. The second way, which is probably the most common, is the distal nephron. And these are studies in animals where they basically give animals loop diuretics and then they look at the kidney and see like what's happening there. And so they see like other sodium transporters increase, like for instance, ENAC, it gets it elevated. NCC, which is what a thiazide diuretic works on, increases. Pendrin, all these things is basically trying to enhance sodium reabsorption because you're losing sodium from the loss of NKCC2 into the urine. So that's sort of how I would describe a diuretic resistance. This is also described as diuretic breaking. And these are all things that are important because if you just were to block this channel, you would have a scenario that we, we see in kids called uh, Barter syndrome, which is usually babies who have this mutation in NKCC2, they don't live very long because you cannot live with this completely inactive NKCC2. So really what you want to do then is to block another segment of the nephron. We sort of talked about that earlier, the sequential blocking. And one of the go-tos is the NCC or the thiazide diuretic blocking the sodium chloride co-transporter NCC with metolazone or chlorothiazide or chlorothalidone. So those are two options. And so there's a clinical trial called the 3T trial. I think it's fairly small, 60 patients. And they gave metolazone, chlorothalazide, and tolvaptan, actually. And they saw that all three of them worked about the same. The other thing is there's this theory or thought, I think you still find it in like first aid for the boards, that you've got to give metolazone exactly one hour before the furosemide. And I think that, as far as I can say, see, is debunked. And one of the things is metolazone has a really long half-life. And so it really doesn't make sense that that is the case. And so what happens is you give the loop diuretic and you lose sodium, you upregulate NCC, then you go ahead and you block that. So then you have a denaturis. So that is how I would describe diuretic resistance. And that would be how I would manage this patient. I'd probably add on the zone. Dr. Sparks, really appreciate that point about diuretic resistance, that it's not usually from venous congestion, since in our experience, when there is venous congestion, that's actually quite responsive to diuretic therapy itself and tends to improve with more diuretics. So Focusing on the nephron and sequential blockade makes a lot of sense. That kind of double punch, if you will, wham, bam, but get that urine out. I'm also glad you mentioned the long half-life of metolazone. Sometimes the electrolyte abnormalities that are caused by metolazone come a little bit delayed. And so we always counsel the house staff residents to remember that and not forget that they had given metolazone the day before and be cautious about the replacement of these electrolytes. Yes. Watch the electrolytes, potassium. I mean, and if you do this as an outpatient, which occasionally I'll have to do, you need to be watching them a lot, a lot closer than just on uh, loop diuretic alone. Yeah, absolutely. And we've definitely had cases where the potassium falls uh, way beyond the comfort and cause uh, significant arrhythmia. So we have to be careful about that. Moving to you, Dr. Felter, what goes to your mind when confronted with diuretic resistance? And what is your typical stepwise approach and management for that kind of clinical situation? Yeah, I, I think Matt said it very well, and he pointed out, which I think it's easy to kind of forget, the breaking phenomenon, which is a sort of general term for decreasing diuretic responsiveness over time, is actually adaptive. And as Matt said, if it wasn't for that, 
diuretics would be essentially fatal because you would just keep diuresing until you became so dehydrated you died. So basically diuretic resistance is when those mechanisms are working against you instead of for you or the diuretic breaking is happening when you think the patient clinically still needs more diuresis. Sequential nephron blockade with first an adequate dose of loop, which that is sometimes we see people with kind of pseudo diuretic resistance, which is really they just need a higher dose of loop diuretics. But if they've had a sufficient dose of loop diuretics, certainly like the patient in this example, then I think adding, and we use metolazone as well, distal nephron blockade is important and is often associated with a pretty profound diuresis. Two things that were said, which were really important. One is that the effect can often be a little bit delayed. We see somebody on rounds the morning, not much is happening. We get some metolazone. We have to add some metolazone. You know, we come back in the evening, maybe still not that much has happened, but a lot of times sort of overnight, the floodgates will open and even into the next day, you'll see a pretty profound diuresis. And it couldn't emphasize strongly enough the profound electrolyte abnormalities, hyponatremia and hypokalemia, especially that you can get with metolazone. So you really have to be cautious about using it. And then when you do so, you've really got to be on, you can't wait till you're already behind to start supplementing people's potassium, especially, or you can really get into trouble. So even though it's a kind of small, benign looking pill, it can be dangerous. So you got to treat it with respect. So despite all of these great pearls for approach to diuretic refractoriness proves quite refractory and the nephron's breaking phenomenon just breaks our house staff's optimism and resolve. So Dr. Sparks, you get a call from your fellow that the uh-huh. team consulted nephrology for swan-guided ultrafiltration given the difficulty with medical diuresis. So what should I do? Should I go consent for a dialysis catheter placement? Well, I, I mean, I look at the situation like we've talked and really think, you know, have we given this individual an adequate dose of diuresis? And the good position that we're in as nephrology is that we can do dialysis. We know how to do dialysis, but that also, we sort of feel like maybe we're a little more free to really increase the dose of the furosemide. Oftentimes, it's not an adequate dose. And so ensuring that that happens. I think in the United States, we probably aren't as aggressive. And I don't know if this is true, but if you go on Google and you type in oral furosemide tabs, I think in France, they have 500 milligram tablet of furosemide. Mike, is that true? I did not know the answer to that, but I do think it is true that many people are more frightened of high-dose loop diuretics than they are metolazone, and probably they should be the other way around. I mean, if you think about what's the toxicity of loop diuretics, it's really ototoxicity. It's not that there's a toxic renal dose of loop diuretics per se, and that, you know, you need to be typically at quite high levels unless you've got sort of acute renal failure. So maybe we'll have time at the end to get into some of the other alternative loops, which you might try in patients who have a very high diuretic requirement as outpatients. Yeah, bumetanide might be a better option in that scenario. So I would do anything in my power to diurese this individual before moving to ultrafiltration. I think that would be my approach. The other thing that I was going to mention, one is, we haven't talked about it, but SGLT2 inhibitors, I think, are really changing our thought process around heart failure. And they are, what I call them is diuretic enablers. And there have been studies to show that if you have a patient on a SGLT2 inhibitor, they'll have a better natriuretic response to a loop diuretic. They'll lose more weight. They'll have more naturesis. So, you know, we might be seeing these used more in acute heart failure. I'm sure there are trials that are happening in that scenario, but you look at even the patients that have diabetic kidney disease, they had less hospitalizations for heart failure. And definitely the heart failure studies showed that they reduced heart failure admission. So that's something that I hope will start to see an, an impact in the number of people that are being admitted to the hospital with this. Yeah, that's a perfect tie-in for the next question that I was thinking about. You know, speaking about SGLT2 inhibitors, there is a lot of robust data coming out for them, especially for reducing heart failure admissions from the diabetes cardiovascular outcomes trials, and now even mortality benefit for HEF-REF with DAPA-HF. And so some promising data for HEF-PEF. They're definitely not diabetic drugs. <laughs> They're way more important. The patients with CKD without proteinuria is very similar to HEF-PEF patients because we don't have any targeted therapy. And currently there's a clinical trial in non-proteinuric CKD, which is the ultimate sort of combination of medical issues that we really don't have any good therapy for. And so I will see if SGLT2 inhibitors work for that as well. Yeah, and no, we really need to move away from thinking about them as diabetes drugs. Are they anti-hypertension drugs, anti-CKD drugs, anti-fibrosis drugs? Pro-life drugs, really. <laughs> I think what was said was really important. So I think in HEF-REF, HLT2 inhibitors are now going to become standard of care 
along with sacubitril valsartan beta blockers, mineralocorticoid antagonists. So quad therapy for HFREF patients has kind of become standard because they clearly improve cardiovascular mortality or heart failure hospitalizations and quality of life, which there aren't actually very many drugs that do that. They do seem to be one of those classes. And actually, I'm reminded a little bit of when statins first came out and they were seen as these sort of niche drugs. And then the more you studied statins, the more basically in whatever scenario you studied them, you found some benefit. So I think this is how SGLT2 inhibitors are kind of evolving, but a really fascinating class of drugs. I do think one of the things that's been a barrier to rapid uptake for cardiologists certainly is the feeling that they're kind of not their lane, that, you know, oh, I've got to talk to the Peruvers managing the person's diabetes before I mess with the diabetes medicines. But, you know, the risk of hypoglycemia is extremely low. And like most people, I at first was felt very cautious about messing with the diabetes regimen. But I think this is going to be uh, a major implementation challenge for us as people who take care of patients with cardiovascular or cardiorenal disease. How are we going to get the uptake of this class of drugs to be a lot faster than some of the other effective things that have taken, you know, a decade? Because I really think they're game changers for a variety of cardiovascular and cardiorenal conditions. Yeah, these are actually fantastic and important points. I just want to point out about the hypoglycemia. If you look at the DAPA CKD study, there was more hypoglycemia in the placebo group than in the depagliflozin group. And, and this study included patients without diabetes as well, about 40%. But that, that's a really important thing is that the amount of hypoglycemia is not as much as we think. What about an acute heart failure? Can we talk about that at all? Is there, Mike, what's going on with that? Yeah, as you said, there have been some small trials. They're not in and of themselves powerful diuretics. They are, I think, diuretic enabling is actually a good term. I, I do think we're going to get into a situation where patients are going to come in on them chronically. So it won't be the sort of thing. It's a little bit like mineral corticoid antagonists. You know, you can give higher doses of spironolactone and actually get naturesis. And then we actually did a trial called Athena looking at that. But they're also standard of care chronically. So it's not like something, oh, they're in the hospital. Now I'm going to start this medicine because people are going to be increasingly going to be on it. Let's switch gears a little bit. Dr. Felker, what's the rationale for a low dose dopamine to augment diuresis? We actually touched on this in our HFF episode featuring our clinical mentor, Dr. Kavita Sharma, who you may know. But what are your thoughts on this approach? Does it carry any weight to actually help our patients lose fluid weight? Yeah, so renal dose dopamine or low dose dopamine is one of those things that, of course, has been around for a long time, but not traditionally been rigorously studied. We did an NIH study called ROSE looking at a fixed diuretic regimen with or without low dose dopamine. And what we found in that trial, which was pretty interesting, was one, it didn't really seem to increase urine output, although there was better signals in the low EF group than in the HEF group. And that was a study where it had all ejection fractions. But the thing that to me was most striking about it is even, and I think that study was a dose of two, there was a lot more tachycardia in the dopamine group. So we sort of think, oh, this is just low-dose dopamine. It doesn't have any inotropic effects. But in that study, it really did. So the other study you mentioned, Kavita, is, is Ropadope, one of the all-time great acronyms for cardiology. Again, looking at low-dose dopamine in HEF-PEF, and again, not really seeing a strong signal there. So as I think we said earlier, renal blood flow, unless the patient is sort of frankly in shock, is actually not a big player, I think, in the routine patient who's coming in with heart failure. So the idea that we need to augment renal blood flow is, I don't think, makes as much sense from what we know about the pathophysiology. So I don't think it has much of a role. It tends to be one of those kind of things we reach for. We've tried everything else. And, and you know, we you do obviously see clinical anecdotes where it does seem to work. But I think it's sort of a routine thing. I don't think the data really support it. At this point, we discussed several add-ons for our usual approach of sequential nephron blockade for patients with diuretic resistance. Dr. Sparks, I'd love to get your thoughts on just a couple more of our less typical options. One is the natriuretic peptide neceratide, and the other is vasopressin antagonists like tovaptan. Is there any role for these agents? Uh, that's a good question. So I'll start with tovaptan. So tovaptan was studied, and I think it was right when I was starting fellowship, maybe 2007, around there. The Everest trial came out, with, which was a randomized clinical trial, about 4,000 patients looking at inpatient acute decompensated heart failure. And so that was uh, a negative study. And it was really unfortunate. It felt like if you look at the pathophysiology, it just made sense. And it, maybe it does make sense as an outpatient, but that's currently not FDA approved or been rigorously evaluated. So tovaptan is kind of not an option. So Nasiratide has a, a little bit more of a history. And so we did use that when I was in residency, I think. 
And maybe Mike can talk a little bit more about sort of what happened with Nasiratide. And again, this is sort of a, an endogenous uh, molecule that's repurposed and given to, to a patient, so a BNP. And just always like to throw this out there. The clinical trial that got that put BNP on the map was called BNP, breathing not properly. I think <laughs> general medicine 2002. And so it has a lot of properties that are, are positive. For instance, it has beta blockade property, has naturesis property by the natural function of it. And also it blocks the angiotensin system. So if you read about Nasiratide, it's like, wow, it's the perfect drug for heart failure. And I, I thought I'd have Mike take over about what happened with the clinical trials on Nasiratide. Yeah. So Nasiratide is a, is a really interesting story. You know, it was approved as a IV therapy for acute heart failure. So patients come in the hospital or getting diuretics and you would add on Nasiratide and approved based on, I think, pretty modest data that was looking at dyspnea and filling pressures and not sort of the clinical endpoints we would think about for approving a drug, but it had tremendous uptake mm -hmm. and became very widely used. I think at its peak, about 10 or 15 percent of patients hospitalized for heart failure in the U.S. were getting the serotide. Yeah, so that's a huge use. And then there was a couple of meta-analysis that came out, all basically driven by one guy raising questions about its safety. And there was then this big controversy, and there was a, Eric Topol wrote an editorial in the New England Journal calling for it to be taken off the market. And so there was basically an agreement with the FDA to do a large outcomes trial, which we ran at Duke called the Ascend HF trial, to really see, does this drug have a clear benefit or is it harmful or what's the story with it? And what we found in Ascend was it was not harmful. You know, the concerns about its safety weren't really validated, but it also wasn't super beneficial. It had a very modest, probably not clinically significant impact on symptoms. So, you know, I think the story of the serotide is a little bit of a cautionary tale about a bunch of things. As Matt said, it, from a physiologic standpoint, it seems very attractive and it kind of got approved and then utilized um, a lot based on kind of limited data. But when studied more robustly, that didn't really pan out. So the need to really understand a robust, large-scale outcome trials for common conditions before we start using things widely, I think is a good cautionary tale from the whole Nasiratide story. There's still a lot of interest out there in, in different naturetic peptides. The naturetic peptides, a whole family is a whole system of hormones and how they might be used at different doses or in different scenarios. So there may still be more to this story, but I'm not actually even sure you can order Nasiratide anymore. It's definitely not routinely used in, in clinical practice. Wow. Round four. What a round. We're starting to box together now. This is not good, right? I mean, yeah, this has been like the least. <laughs> Can someone else come into the ring, please? The crowd would be booing by now. Yeah. I think they're hugging now. I, I think. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> we got a cardiologist that has basically come on record to say that they want to measure the urine sodium. Okay. Uh, we've got a nephrologist that believes that the creatinine elevation is not a big deal. So this has really turned the tides of all medicine. Dogs and cats living together. Well, you know, we're all still standing, which is much more than I can say for dopamine, nasiratide, and tobaptan. But hey, let's go to the final knockout round. It's round five. Our patient is feeling much better. She's also feeling empowered after heart failure education, pharmacist counseling, and a dietitian's visit. With her newfound sense of engagement, she asks our student about her discharge regimen and wonders if there's a stronger alternative to furosemide, given that she develops fluid overload despite taking this medication every day. Our student's excited to advocate for switching to torsamide. Yeah, Kel, that's a great thought. And, you know, we discussed a bit about furosemide versus torsamide from Dr. Robert Mentz in episode number 36. But Dr. Sparks, would you review the major differences between furosemide, torsamide, and bumetanide and why one may be more potent than another? Yeah, this is good to, to know this and to have a comfort level in all three, because sometimes I think it is important if you're having diuretic resistance with one to try another. The most popular or most common, which I'm not really sure why, is furosemide. And furosemide has some problems. And the biggest problem is its bioavailability can widely fluctuate and it's about average about 50%. So when you take it into your gut, how much gets absorbed can vary from person to person. And so that means that if you convert oral to IV is a two to one conversion. So if you give 40 milligrams PO, it's 20 milligrams IV. And so if you were to compare furosemide to bumetanide to torsemide, bumetanide and torsemide all have a one-to-one -one oral to IV conversion because it has about a 90 to 100% bioavailability. So whatever you take in to your gut, 
gets into your bloodstream. And so the dosing for furosemide typically, which we've talked about, is about 40 milligrams. And you compare that to bumetanide and it's a lot more potent. It's one milligram. And then torsamide, it's 20 milligrams. So it's really important to know those conversions when you're seeing a patient and wanting to switch classes. The other thing to recognize is that if you take furosemide or bumetanide with food, it can alter how much you can absorb into your bloodstream. And so in torsamide, it, it's not as much. So you need to counsel the patient that you shouldn't take it with the food. The other thing is the, the onset of action. And all of these have a fairly quick onset of action if you give it IV, where furosemide in about five minutes, as Mike mentioned, you know, if you give a dose of furosemide and they haven't done anything, there's no urine output in four or five hours, then it is not working. Whereas in bumetanide, it's even quicker in two minutes and torsemide a little bit more delayed at, at 10 minutes. So that's really, that's the major take-home differences between entorsemide. So it's the oral IV conversion. You have to look at that for furosemide two to one, a more potent bumetanide, which is a one-to-one conversion, and then sort of in the middle, torsamide, but it still has a one-to-one oral-to-IV conversion. Yeah. And I never got to mention the nephron bomb. So nephron bomb is basically blocking every known part of the nephron that we can block. And so it, it's a combination of acetazolamide, amylaride, bumetanide, and metolazone. And so you, you sequentially block all four segments, and that's called the nephron bomb. I, I just just. Just to be clear, I I have never done that. I've never done. So Jem Testani is a big diuretic guy at Yale who's famous for his, he has taken this whole idea, you know, don't be afraid of diuretics. He has embraced that as his true mantra. He's definitely doing a lot of really interesting stuff in diuretic physiology. I think he has like two or three R1s just about how diuretics work when he's a cardiologist. But anyway, he's, they, they call that at Yale, the Testani bomb. Yeah, it will produce urine. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so shifting gears a little bit again, Dr. Mentz, who discussed the Transform HF trial as the PI of the study, which is a pragmatic open label RCT of torsamide versus furosemide for discharge in heart failure patients. And so since that, we see Dr. Falkler getting along so nicely with Dr. Sparks to create some sort of rivalry between at least two drugs. Are there any updates from the study? And what's your personal approach? Are you a torsamide person or are you a furosemide person? Yeah, so I don't have an update from the study, although enrollment is continuing. The basis of TRANSFORM is really around, interestingly, it's really a mortality trial. So part of the the question is there's some data that suggests that unique among the loop diuretics, torsamine might have some effects on cardiac fibrosis and some other things in terms of cardiac structure and function that might make it favorable. So those are all mostly theoretical. We'll see how TRANSFORM plays out. I'll just tell you my own experience, which is that I think torsamide in general is just more forgiving. Um, it has less variability and you can take it with food without it having a huge difference. It has a longer half-life, so you can actually get away with taking it once a day, whereas most loop diuretics, you need to take more than once a day. One thing we didn't really talk about is, you know, when your diuretic wears off, your kidney, which has been losing, having this naturesis, you know, sort of puts it in reverse and starts becoming very sodium avid. And so if you're taking furosemide once a day, you might have six hours of diuretic effect and 18 hours of sodium avidity that might cancel out any diuresis you had. So torsamide has a longer half-life. It tends to be a little more consistent. It just tends to work where furosemide doesn't in patients who are struggling. So certainly patients who have very much diuretic resistance, I, I tend to go to torsamide, but at the right dose, you know, either one can work. I have to agree with that. Most patients that I'll see in clinic will already be on furosemide, and if it's working, fine. They're uvolemic, I won't change it, but torsamide's my go-to if I'm de novo starting a diuretic on an individual, and that's heart failure or from volume overload from chronic kidney disease. So I I agree. I think some of the the better bioavailability, the longer half-life, the ability to take it once a day, to me, make it a far more superior loop diuretic. But somehow furosemide is the number one in the United States. I have no idea how that occurred. Well, so for a while, torsamide was a lot more expensive. And so people sort of saved it for people who had failed furosemide, but the cost difference, I think, is, is not nearly as, as much now. So there's probably much less rationale. When will we know about the clinical trial? And then when can we schedule the NFJC Cardio Nerds Twitter chat? You'll have to ask Rob. I, I mean, it's ongoing, but I actually don't know what the projections are for, for being done. You know, it's an interesting trial, and Rob probably talked about this when he was he was on because it's extremely pragmatic. Basically, you, you're in the hospital with volume overload, you get randomized, and then it's all open label. And when you go home, the clinicians just get told this patient's randomized. So send him home on furosemide or, or torsemide, whichever the case may be. So it's a great example of a practical question where there's not randomized data and doing a pragmatic trial 
that can answer those questions without needing some of the trial machinery that's an expense that we think of for trials of new drugs. Any exclusion or a type of heart failure that you're looking for, or is it? It's agnostic for ejection fraction. I mean, now there are people who we might, if I have a patient who's failed furosemide as an outpatient and is now in the hospital, I would put him in the trial, obviously, because I don't want to randomize to something that already didn't work for them. But most patients, as you said, have just been started on one or the other, and they've been on that their whole lives. Mm-hmm. I'll be really interested to see the results of that. And we've joked a lot during this discussion about this you being a battle between two specialties. But in all seriousness, there's a lot of times you know, that we've been on the wards that our practice feels like we're fielding a battle between two consulting teams or the primary team and a consulting team. So it's refreshing and really been nice to hear two experts coming from opposite perspectives agree on a lot of the core concepts that we've talked about here. I agree with you, Kelly. You know, no matter what camp you're in, cardiology versus renal, I think you could definitely say that this conversation had an amazing flow. Dr. Felker and Sparks, do you have any parting thoughts about diuresis from cardio nerds or nephro nerds perspectives? So I thought this was a great discussion and I do feel a little uh, chagrined or embarrassed not to have provided more fireworks because I know traditionally the cardiologist would expect to be the one yelling and throwing things. So I I apologize for being relatively calm, but I I thought this was great. Yeah, this was great and really good puns. And I'm just going to leave you with one thing. And that's, I've been saying this one freely filtered and I do think it's true. We need to really increase the uptake of SGLT2 inhibitors, but here it goes. So when you wake up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror, and if you see a flozinator, then you're doing the right thing that day. So flozinate everyone you can find if they have kidney disease or heart failure, or if they happen to have diabetes, this is something we really need to do and get the uptake of these in the community, I think is really important. Well, on that note, it it has been a great discussion about a really common clinical problem that can have us scratching our heads a lot in the practical stance. Amit and Dan, thank you as always for bringing an engaging case and bringing two great experts together for this discussion. And Dr. Felker and Dr. Sparks, I want to thank you sincerely for bringing a wealth of pathophysiology, a little bit of medical history, and some great practical clinical pearls. Really appreciate everything I learned from you today. Is it enough to get you to choose heart failure over electrophysiology or probably not? Not quite. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of a better way to close than that. (laughs) Movie. It could be a movie. If you just drop the mic and walk off stage now. (laughs) That was like the nephrologist version of Dr. Seuss. Hey, flows in eight, you know, I love it.